Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and we're glad you're here. Did you know that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the world? And the truth is we all face mental health challenges, and learning to navigate them is the difference between a super successful career and life or living a career and life of struggle. But the business world is not exactly the most welcoming place to talk about our mental well-being. And things are changing. One of the people leading the change is our guest today, Maura Ahrens-Mealy. She's the author of The Anxious Achiever, Turning Your Biggest Fears into Your Leadership Superpower. Maura is also the host of the popular Anxious Achiever podcast. She's on a mission to normalize anxiety and leadership. Maura says that anxiety is built into the very nature of leadership and can be harnessed into a force for good. If you've ever experienced that feeling in your stomach that comes from being nervous, or if you've ever grappled with fear, you're going to thank yourself for listening to this conversation. And be sure to pay attention to Chris's very own personal and touching story. Now, most CEOs have a tough time answering the most important question in business. Are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? And in tough times, the inability to answer this simple question can be devastating. According to research from our friends at Clary, the average company has 14.9% revenue leak, which is revenue that they earn but that falls through the cracks. In good times and in bad, every drop of revenue matters. Go to Clary.com and calculate your potential revenue leak. That's Clary.com, C-L-A-R-I.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Maura, it sure is wonderful to see you. <laughs> it's great to see you, but it's better to see your cat. Yeah, well, it's always fun to have Bean with me, and he's always with me uh, for uh, in the in the studio, and he loves he loves podcasting. <laughs> wow, he's looking right at you right now. <laughs> now, I gotta tell you, uh, I'm su- happily surprised to actually see you on video, and. Um, I remember distinctly when I was on your podcast, which was wonderful for you to invite me, there was no video. No. And I remember you saying, now we don't drop the video, we are only recording the audio, but but I remember you saying something about how, you know, anxious achievers don't always like to be on camera. <laughs> well, I'm turning off my lights then. Oof. Yeah, no, no one's going to see this video. This is the only reason we use the video is to increase human connection. Right. So I, um, I'm like a holdout. I'm like the last audio only holdout in podcasting. Well, I, you and me both, sister. I mean, I'm super introverted. I have social anxiety. And so I, when I'm, perf- when I'm performing, see, I slipped. Yeah. When I'm talking to you right now, I feel like I'm performing. And, um, I find for me as an interviewer, I'm so much better when I'm not focusing on myself. Right. And I can just be in an audio space. Yes. And, you know, one thing I've learned with Zoom, and of course, we're not on Zoom now, but but on Zoom, the first thing I do is hide self-view. Because I don't care who you are, 
When you put a human being in front of a mirror or a camera and they can see themselves, their eye gravitates towards themselves. We're, uh, that's just what we do. And so, yeah, hide self-view is is good. But it's nice to see you, like, you know, as a, you're not just a voice to me. You're a real person. No, <laughs> My kids are upstairs. I told them not to be loud. Okay. Well, if they want to come and make an appearance, that's, that's just fine. And so um, I love your book. I think it's about mm-hmm. time that somebody wrote a book like this. Thank no, you. because, I, I, you know, today we live in an environment where we're now, it's, it's a lot more okay to talk about some of this stuff. And so um, I've got a whole bunch of thoughts and I've made a whole bunch of notes, but I'm curious where you might want to start, Moral. You know, I just, I'm reflect. I'm in kind of a moment of reflection right now because I've been, um, since April 3rd, almost constantly in, in conversation with people, which has been a great thing. But I'm also at this point where it's sort of, I have a little bit of a lull this week and I'm like, what have I learned from all these conversations, right? I've talked to hundreds of people at this point. And it's so interesting because what I, what I truly feel <laughs> is that people get the most benefit out of the anxious achiever and just talking about mental health and work. It's not that what I say is so great or that it's so smart or revolutionary. It's just the fact that people feel normal about it when they talk to me. They don't feel weird. They don't feel shameful. They don't feel like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong? They, they just integrate it. And I, and I, just hope that if there's one thing that I can do is to just help people integrate and and really take the time to think about their mental health and how it impacts, you know, how we show up. And so I think honestly, that's been that's been just a huge piece of it is like am I hum- is my approach is my approach human enough? And and it's one thing I feel proud of. Well, your humanity uh, pours out of you, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I- I'm curious, as an introvert, as a anxious achiever yourself, what's it like for you to have had so many conversations? I, I assume most of them or many of them are around promoting your new book, right? What's it like to be in extrovert mode and have people ask you questions and, as, as many people say today, put yourself out there? What's that like for you? Okay, so I have the distinction, although it's not as rare as people think, of being an extreme ham. I like put the spotlight on me and I'm so happy. I love it. I'm I'm such a ham. I love the media. I love giving speeches. I cannot talk to people casual. Like I cannot go to a PTO meeting. I at soccer games have such intense social anxiety, like at cocktail hour. But when I have a job to do and when I am so like rooted in, 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 in being there for people and, um, and honestly just like doing what I want to do, it's great. And so, you know, a lot of people, they hear the words introvert, they hear the words social anxiety. They think that we just were like, super shy. We, we don't like to talk to people. We're not funny. We don't like to give speeches. 
You're not like, fun. We're, we're not fun. <laughs> we're like, you know, we're like really You're buried weird. in a spreadsheet or a book, maybe. <laughs> and you know that that's part of us. Sure. And there are many people like that, and I love that about people. I'm not one of them. I'm what <laughs> I'm a shy, loud. There's an Australian comedian, Jordan Roscopoulos, and that's what she calls people like us. A shy, loud. Well, it's interesting because you and I then are sort of two sides of the same coin. I'm obviously an extrovert. It doesn't take long to figure that out. However, and it was my friend Dushka Zapata that taught me this. I, I never could understand this about myself, which is I'm an introverted extrovert. Hmm. So if you invite me to an event that's like a schmoozy event, I'm, I'm not going. Now, if I'm going, like you just said, if you invite me to speak or participate in a thing or there's some kind of a role for me or reason for me to be there, I'm happy to go. And, you know, I've done book tours and so forth. And, you know, as, as long as the staff will keep bringing me whiskeys, I all sign books for three hours and I have and shake everybody's hand and all that sort of stuff. However, um, I don't want to go to a cocktail party with a whole bunch of people that I don't know. Um, I used to go to Ted. I haven't been to Ted in probably two decades because once they started putting the stuff online, I was like, well, great. I don't have to go and do all that uncomfortable schmoozing that I can't stand. And so all that Ted's stuff I get there. invited to, I used to do it when I was younger. Cause you sort of have to, as you're building your reputation, you want to build a network and meet people and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, I haven't participated in much of those kinds of things for a, a long time. That's so interesting. I think a lot of us, um, I have an observation about people who, you know, are neurodivergent or sort of like where I, I prefer emotions. diverse myself, but okay, I'll take okay. divergent too. <laughs> um, I actually, I'm going to share with you why I'm using that intentionally now, but is that I'm, I always joke, like, I can't do small, I'm not good at small talk. Like, <laughs> I, I'll, I'm going to go straight to sex, religion, and politics and mental health, which makes me, I think, a good interviewer, good writer, um, again, good at that human connection, but also like a lot for some people. So it's, I think it's super interesting also. And, and I've, and I've found that like, like attracts like, and that the people on my book tour who just want to come and like have the talk and, and put it out there, I love so much. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the lesson is you just really have to understand what allows you to shine and try to get rid of as much as you can of what really drains you. Yes. Oh, here comes Bean again. Hi, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I think he really likes you, Maura. Oh, I am a cat person. Um, I was never a cat person ever un until now because this, this guy changed the game for me. Mm -hmm. So let's go right at sort of something I've been wondering about since, since we booked this conversation which is, um, I had a conversation not long ago on, on the podcast with Mike Maples. And one of the things that Mike and I talked about, he's the legendary VC, in case you don't know. But one of the things that we talked about was there are moments in business of radical crisis or radical uh, material uh, impact, both negative and positive, whether it's closing the big sale or something horrible happens to the company, or dealing with a terrible economy, maybe some layoffs. You know, I was the head of marketing at a company that got investigated by the Securities Exchange Commission, and we had to fire our CEO and CFO, and the stock got cut in half. And, you know, we all, if you're going to have any kind of a career um, 
particularly one where you're really trying to achieve things, where you're really pushing to do new and different things, my experience has been that most of us are going to face some pretty radical tragedy, potentially, certainly uncertainty, certainly moments of, of real risk. And those of us who have, you know, let's just, let's just say maybe wrestle with our mental health from time to time, and I do, uh, I have depression. In those moments, particularly as a senior person, we kind of have to show up. But at the same time, we have to take care of ourselves. You know, the day that you fire your CEO, CFO, and general counsel and announce to the world what's going on, that's an intense day. And every day after that, for in our case, 60 days, because it was uh, a month into the fourth quarter, was radically intense where we were fighting for the life of the company and the senior folks were all on planes all the time. And anyway, here's my point. I made a commitment to myself as a young man that I could either be somebody who is a mush or somebody you can count on no matter what. And so if you're somebody with anxiety or in my case, depression, um, and you're also somebody who wants to be a radical achiever, somebody that your teammates can count on when the shit hits the fan, how do we walk this line more between being a no bullshit, you can count on me no matter what senior leader and knowing full well that some of us are going to face some serious mental health challenges and some that might and, and likely will arise from dealing with the crisis or, or the high pressure situation that we're in. Your ability to show up is not impacted by your mental health. Or what you manage. That's a falsehood. In fact, when you manage your mental health, you do the work, you're great at showing up. <laughs> Maura, I have, to inter- I have to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Is it wrong for one man to love another man that's not his wife? <laughs> <laughs> that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such, it's such a, People think in this country and in a lot of places that anxiety, depression make us weak. They don't make us weak. They are things that we feel. Sometimes they're diseases and afflictions. But, you know, I always think about all the leaders who pay a ton of money to hear about guys who ate other people in the Arctic and crashed in planes and almost died and survived horrific burns and fires. And why do we love those stories? Why do we love those stories of adversity? Because people went through really hard things and it was really dark and really hard. And they did a lot of work and they integrated all that into their self, which made them who they are today, who can command $35,000 to speak to a giant sales conference, (laughs) you know? Mental health is not different than that. In fact, it's when people deny and try to control or drink away or act out anxiety and depression too that we can't show up for other people. So I really have a problem with the framing and it's really common, but you know, 
we manage challenge in life. That's what makes us leaders. Thank you so much. Your work to me is worth it for that thread. Because many of us struggle with challenges from time to time. Life is not, you know, roses, moonlight, and canoes and champagne. And even if you're not somebody who experiences depression as part of your regular life experience, I don't have anxiety, but I do have depression. Um, they feel pretty different to me. I, I, uh, we can talk about that in a sec. But I'm the person you want in a fucking foxhole. And I know there's an, I'm originally from Canada, and there's an expression we have in Canada for producing results called putting moose on the hood. <laughs> I'm somebody who puts a lot of moose on the hood. And I'm somebody that requires a lot of work to maintain my, and I'll just put it straight to you, my sanity. I have to work on my sanity. And I made a choice at one point in my life to not go insane. You know, so many people are so shitty at work. And they control, they micromanage, they don't let other people in. They are gatekeepers. They overwork. They make everyone else super anxious. You know, they do the whole thing. And if they really just took some time, and even better, took time when they're not in crisis or things aren't in crisis, to sort of think about, you know, the old saying, like, if you walk into a bar and you get in a fight, it might be the bar's problem, but you walk into another bar and you get in a fight, it might be your problem. I think that's it. I, I just butchered it. But basically. <laughs> Do you want to hear a good one like that? Yeah, please. <laughs> so as someone who is, I'll use your term and you'll tell me what it means, I hope, neurodivergent in a pretty radical way. I mean, for you know, ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, executive function disorder, blah, blah, blah. So I had, let's just call it a very mixed educational career that sort of started going down from grade three on. And I can't remember exactly what grade, it would have been maybe grade six, seven, somewhere in there. And I had another intergalactically terrible report card. So my dad went to, you know, parent teacher interview. My mom and dad went and came back. My dad sat me down afterwards and I'm like, okay, and I thought, okay, here, here we go, you know. And basically I had D's and F's and maybe I had a C or two, but I, you know, it was not good. So he says, let me just kind of go through each of these subjects. So, you know, what's going on in math? And what's going on in science? And what's going on in English, et cetera, et cetera. And basically my answer to each was the teacher's an asshole. <laughs> and so at the end of the going through the list and me answering pretty much the same thing every time, my father in his very sort of dry way, and it's funny how things our parents say to us, certain things just stick with us forever. He looks me straight in the eye. And he wasn't mad. And he said, well, Christopher, if one man calls you an ass, so what? If three people call you an ass, well, maybe you should think about it. Ten people call you an ass, you should buy a saddle. <laughs> That's very good. I love that. Oh, God, I got to tell that to my 12-year-old. Yeah, well, and. My dad's name is Bruce, and Bruce was right. And it did kind of wake me up. It's like, well, you know, this excuse doesn't work past the third person or fourth person or whatever. Right? So it's a lot about 
self-awareness, about pattern recognition, and and also caring how you show up in the world for and be there for other people. So I yeah, I mean, I I, I think that um I do want to say, though, that, you know, anyone who's had a mental health crisis also knows that sometimes you're in the throes of a mental health crisis and you can't help other people. Right. I mean, it's a different of being in crisis like your company versus I'm in a mental health crisis. That's different. Sometimes when you're in a mental health crisis, you need to go to the hospital. You need to take a leave of absence. That's different, though, than how you show up in an external crisis. Yes, very much so. Thank you for that. And it's been said many times, but I, I, I always like to hear it, that um, you know, significant challenge, significant crisis, significant pain and suffering changes us. And it really only changes us in one of two ways right? It improves us or it makes us weaker. And so when when someone's going through a crisis, a, a mental health crisis, and they're grappling with it, how do they begin to take a mindset more of, well, the situation is the situation. Sometimes life gets fired at you at point blank range. Sometimes horrible things happen, or sometimes you have to perform in the moment, right? It's the end of the quarter. You're the gal with the $2 million deal that's going to make the quarter for the company, and you've got to perform. In those situations, tell me about the mindset you bring to them, and then post those situations. How do we strive to be a person who is made different, made more powerful as a result of that extreme challenge versus somebody who ends up in the fetal position. I think the difference between what you illustrated there was someone who's in a mental health crisis, and that could be for no reason at all. Sometimes you're in a mental health crisis and everything is fine in your life because it's about your chemistry versus healthy and productive anxiety that you feel when the pressure's really on and you got to make the numbers. And we do ourselves a disservice by thinking that anxiety is always bad and it's always something that is going to send us into the fetal position because that's not true at all. And so there are anxiety disorders that can send us into the fetal position and that we need to work through and go to therapy and maybe even take medicine. And there's everyday anxiety that can get really intense during times that are difficult and uncomfortable and stressful and that we need to manage like we're running a long road race. We need to build sustainability. And then there's this anxiety that we need to run with. You know, like, yeah, I'm the VP of sales. I have to make these numbers. I may be feeling horrible self-doubt. I may feel like I'm an imposter. I may be feeling like everything is going to go Everything I've worked for my whole life is going to go wrong if I don't make these numbers. I may have these feelings, but I have the skill to say that feeling's not true. It's not true, and I'm going to work through it. So here's one I wanted to bounce off you. Do you own your feelings or do your feelings own you? Oh, that's interesting. I'm I'm actually not a psychologist. So I no, I know you're not. You're just a smart person who who's learned a lot and 
gone through a lot. I, I don't, I don't think that, um, I think it's unhealthy when your feelings own you. Yes. Right. I think that emotions and feelings are there for a purpose. Anxiety kept us alive as a species. We need it. And it's very healthy. Fear is a very healthy thing. You know, whether it's the fear of giving that big presentation and failing, well, that's good. That's going to force you to prepare. It's going to force you to bring your A game. And we've all been in those moments. And I'll speak for myself. My life wouldn't be my life if I didn't learn how to perform in those moments. And of course, I didn't learn from the many times I failed in those moments, et cetera. You, 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 you become the person you are. You're, you're forged in challenge. And that's a very powerful, powerful thing. Fear is a very powerful thing. If you and I were out at dinner and uh, somebody came into the restaurant who was acting and behaving in a, a very bizarre way, you know, we live in the United States. There are mass shootings here every day. And so uh, if somebody comes in with a long trench coat and they're looking bizarre and maybe they have a gun and, you know, whatever the situation is, being aware of that is a very smart thing. And that fear will cause you to take action that could save your life or save the life of others. Mm -hmm. um, and so all that's very healthy. Unless, of course, it's our constant state of being or. Or a right. regular state of being. Right. And and I think that's the difference. And that's why understanding about anxiety is really important because, you know, fear and stress are kind of external, right? We see the guy come into the restaurant. Oh, God, can we please use another metaphor because it's too stressful. Use any we're, metaphor you want. We're driving on the highway and a truck cuts in front of us. And we instantly, our nervous system picks that up. We slam on the brakes. Our boss comes in. They say, you've got to make $2 million in sales in two weeks. <laughs> That's a stressor they've just put on us. The anxiety is the emotion that we feel in reaction to the fear and the stress. And an example of anxiety gone amok would be we have that, and this happened to me when I was younger, we have that scary experience on the highway. And we're so anxious the next time we get back in a car because we anticipate that hurt happening again that we don't we don't drive on the highway we make a rule i'm never driving on the highway and we carry that anxiety with us and so i think it's really really important when you're thinking about am my emotions controlling me well that's an example where your emotion is controlling you and you might need to drive on the highway to get to work or take your kids somewhere. And so anxiety is a lot about pattern and it's really important to understand that. You may have the anxiety about the deadline and you're anticipating a tough outcome or a bad outcome. And you may put your personal self-worth into it. So many of us do this, right? If I don't make that sales number, I'm, I'm not worth it. I'm bad. I'm going to disappoint my boss. And that's a question to ask. It's like the highway. What experience did I have that makes me think like I'm a total failure if I don't make these numbers? You know? Yes. Now, neurodivergent. Tell me about why you like that phrase, please. Do you not like the phrase or, or do you just think neurodiverse? 
Well, so so here's my objection. Uh, forget the phrase for a second. There are many educators. There are many people in the um, dyslexia world, in the world of supporting and helping people who have uh, learning differences, who believe that they are a disease, that they are a disorder. As a matter of fact, here in the state of California, if you have ADHD or dyslexia or dyscalculia or, or, or those sorts of things, and you therefore need more time and a test as a child, you have to be classified as having a disorder. And if, if it's not that word, it's a word a lot like that. Uh, one of the largest dyslexic training companies, if you go to their website, I find it absolutely disgusting because it's all about overcoming your dyslexia. And so here's the aha for me as somebody with a bunch of these things. Look, are there real downsides to this stuff? Yeah. I'll never know where the keys are. Parallel parking. I, I have executive function disorder. So parallel parking and Ikea and all that shit. Forget it. For me, probably the worst one is the depression one, but I, I can never find anything. I can't organize shit. Like I need a lot of help. I have a lot of people who push my uh, different wheelchair for me, starting with my incredible wife and everybody who works with me and my family and friends. They all know this about me and they all love me despite it. And they all know that I'm going to, you know, there's certain things that I'm incapable of or not capable of very well. They all know that. And that's a very real thing. And in my experience, teaching people how to stick handle around that is a very important thing. So I think there's real value there. However, and it's a very big however, having a different brain is a fucking superpower. 100%. I can do things that normal brain people just can't. I can see things that they can't. And the thing that's different, I think, about many of us who are different neurologically is we're very powerful in a few domains and a disaster in a lot of domains. That's been my experience talking to thousands and thousands of people who are similar to me over my life and doing a lot of reading and looking at all the research. And I'm not an expert. I didn't go to school for any of this, but I'm, I live it. And I spend a lot of time with young people talking about this stuff. And so to me, it's a two-pronged issue. It's a, on one hand, how do you ameliorate the liabilities, which are very real. I live with them every fucking day. No one has to explain that to me. And the more important part, however, is to cultivate, to empower, to stoke the genius. And in my experience in the education system and in the work world, that's not what happens. We're taught to be well-rounded. Mm -mm. And some people are, and God bless them. I could no, no easier be well-rounded as I could fart my way to the moon and back. So I'm curious what your reaction to all that is. I have so many reactions. You know, I, I guess when you talk about domains, it's like who set up the domains? You know, I mean, most of us work in systems that don't benefit us. In fact, I've not met anyone recently who works in corporate America who's like, this is a great system. I fucking love this. I love showing up at work every day. It's so good for me. 
<laughs> so there's that. Um, most of us work in systems that keep us repressed, frustrated, don't play to our strengths. School is one of the worst. Radically disempowering for people like us, school. Radically disempowering for, for anybody. And, and by the way, that holds to your difference in skin color. It holds to your difference in gender. It holds to your difference in sexual orientation and gender orientation. And, and whether you're in an office where everyone went to an Ivy League school and you didn't, right? Difference that is seen as not as powerful gets punished in our society. And I am, I am so with you on the different brain thing. You know, I think that, um, everyone, pretty much everyone I talked to, and you were one of them. That's why I wanted to have you on my podcast on Roger Pierce. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you remember my friend Roger. <laughs> I remember your friend Roger. Um, we who have come out the other side and made systems that do work for us have a lot to teach. And, um, and I think that that's really valuable. You know, I, I think that the thing I like about the neurodiversity movement is that it does acknowledge the incredible strengths that people like us bring to the table. You know, I mean, it's funny, I have bipolar um, disorder, and I um, am pretty much a very anxious person. I'm like very high strung. I'm I'm just very, that's my mind. Unfortunately, it's like my baseline. Been in tons of therapy, tried over 25 different medications. I, I was joking with a bunch of friends, like our hypomanic stages are where some serious magic happens. Now, the depressions, and I don't have bipolar one, I have bipolar two, so I feel I feel lucky, are simply horrible and painful. I think what you alluded to. There's there's to me, there's no bright side. You have it's suffering. No, not not in my experience. And my depression is not fun. Uh, it's not as bad as many, many people, but it can be radically debilitating. Yeah. Radically and, debilitating. And it's the same thing gets me depressed every time. So it's not different things generally almost always it's the same thing and when it gets me by the throat it's got me yeah right and so there's no way to sugarcoat it like i'm not no. here to say like rah rah bipolar disorder it's amazing sign but up here <laughs> <laughs> but if you've got it it's not a sentence that you yeah. can't live your life. And indeed, you might be the idea generator, the creative force, the energetic yes. force that we've all been looking for. Well, yes. And there's a fine line between genius and nuts. Yeah. And by the way, not everyone who has mental illness is genius and that's okay too. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go down the, the superhero right. route as I call right. it. Like plenty of people are just just because yeah. Einstein was nuts and you're nuts doesn't make you Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I feel like there should be a, a series of coffee mugs after this conversation. <laughs> um, we could fire up a bunch of memes. So yeah, right. And 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 that's okay. But basically, you know, it's kind of like you gotta work with what you got. And I'm so glad that we do live in a world where increasingly you can. Yes. Now you're probably not surprised, but 
my favorite part, I think, of your book is the chapter on you're in the face your past part and getting to know you in getting to know your anxiety and specifically on questions to help you develop a more differentiated self. Ooh, that's your favorite. Yeah. And, and I want to ask you about this. I'll, I'll tell you why it's my favorite. My life experience has been that we connect on our similarities, and those are very powerful and very important. You and I share many, many uh, similar, if not exactly the same interests, and so we can connect quickly on those things. And if we both like the same sports team, or we both drink the same IPA, or you know, or if we both came from the same hometown, all those things are powerful connection points for human beings. And we most want to be loved. We most want to be valued for what makes us different, not the same. What truly makes us us, because what makes you you is not the hometown or the fact that we both like the same kind of coffee or whatever it is. Those things are nice connection points. But what makes you you is your differences, what makes you unique. And for you and I to have a meaningful relationship, I have to really love those differences, those uniquenesses. And I have to love you for exactly who you are and value you for exactly who you are and exactly who you're not. Hmm. And so this part of the book for me, you know, on designing yourself, observing your thinking and behavior, um, this was a very powerful section. So help me maybe pop the hood on developing a more differentiated self, particularly in the context of somebody who's neurodifferent. You know, the the concept of differentiated self comes from family systems theory, which is a school of psychology, really. And it's really powerful. It is entwined with how you grew up. You know, and all of us in our family, we play a role. We have expectations. And many of us become defined by the role we played in the family, by our parents' expectations of us. And we are deeply, deeply connected with those expectations and that role such that we don't feel good if we feel like we're not playing into the what, you know, oh, well, Christopher, he's my, he's my funny kid. He's sweet. He's not that great at school, but he's hilarious. <laughs> It's like, and so Christopher doesn't get to ever think he could be good at school because that's not what people expect of Christopher. And so Christopher may live the rest of his life. And I've talked to many people with ADHD, especially and discount, you know, with learning difference who, who think I'm not good at school. I'm actually not that smart. This isn't for me. That's an undifferentiated self. <laughs> You're giving me the. <laughs> yes. So, so let me see if I can bounce this off you. I'll ask it as a question. So throughout life, various people it starts with our parents, our grandparents, our family, then of course, teachers, coaches, et cetera. And then bosses and, you know, over time, they unknowingly slap labels on us. Mm-hmm. Well, Christopher's not applying himself in math. My report cards all say that. Uh, And so 
that is a label that gets stuck on you like a like a uh, you know uh, uh, a piece of luggage and you go to Vegas and you put a sticker on it and what I've learned in life and that's why this chapter on your past or this whole section on your past we can if we understand the labels that got put on us and sometimes we maybe put them on ourselves mm-hmm. well all of a sudden we can decide if we want to keep wearing them anymore there's a difference between a label and a core belief and that's where yes. the family system is important right because someone can put a label on me or so i can have a boss who's like you're bad at math but if i grew up really enjoying math and thinking I was okay at math, I'm like, eh, they don't know what they're talking about. But if I've grown up with this core belief, because it's all I've grown up with, that I'm bad at math, of course, not only am I going to repeat that pattern, but when someone says to me, you're bad at math, I'm going to be like, yes, I am. Punish me for it. (laughs) And I'll probably keep finding myself in situations where I have expectations to not do something well or whatever it may be. And so the, the thing that you can do as an adult, which is so fabulous, especially if you go to therapy, is to be like, that's an X core belief, but it's a label I don't choose to wear. And that really, I think, is, is the life-changing piece of a lot of this stuff. It's a big breakthrough for a lot of people, and it was for me, mm-hmm. to realize that we can choose our personality. And look, there are some natural things. There just are that can't be denied, right? And so there are certain sports I have no business playing. <laughs> and there are other sports where I'm mediocre but enjoy them. And then there are other sports where I'm you know, much better and enjoy them. And that's true about any domain you want to talk about for all of us, right? And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm six feet tall and 205 pounds. I like to run, but it's a really bad idea for my body, it turns out. You know, I got a blown meniscus and, it, you know, it's just, so I don't really run anymore. I bike instead, right? I, I don't have a runner's body. And oh, by the way, when I bike, I'm not the fastest guy on the mountain. Very far from it. I'm, you know. And I know where I am and I don't care. I do it for intrinsic motivation reasons. I totally accept that I am not going to be a champion mountain biker. Um, and, and I'm good with that. Um, and so what I've noticed is for us to feel comfortable more, and I think your book does so much in this regard, we have to sort of figure out what can we create for ourselves? And what are the things that are true uh, based on our assets? And what are the things that are true liabilities that maybe you could get after it? You know, if I really applied myself, I could probably learn how to read a spreadsheet. But I don't know how to read a spreadsheet. And I was the head of marketing for large publicly traded companies. And I did more appreciate my mind, frankly, Christopher. That's oh, I've never read a spreadsheet in my entire life. And I used to manage, you know, giant multi-million budgets. I presented to Wall Street numbers, to investors. I pre- I've raised money. I've bought companies, sold companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you send me a spreadsheet, I'm not going to open it. 
Now, if you're willing to help me when I open it, I will understand it if you walk me through it. But opening it on my own. But you'll accept the help. I mean, I think because that's. Oh, of course. And I'll say, hey, listen, I can't read a fucking spreadsheet. So, and I want to know this data. So please help. Uh, Anyway, I guess my question though is how do we, uh, and this getting to know your past, how do we sort of grapple with those real assets and talents and real liabilities and say, okay, as a business leader or as a leader of any kind, I have to figure a way to ameliorate some of my deficiencies, right? You got to, if you're a business executive, you got to learn how to fucking read some numbers, right? So I need help. I figured that out and I'm not ashamed to ask for it. At the same time, if you want me to come up with a strategy for how we build a $100 billion company, I know how to do that. And so how do we, you know, your book for me is sort of a manual in, in, in a way of sort of self-understanding and sort of realizing where to ameliorate, but not try to do things that aren't going to really work for you and torture yourself with it and, and skate to where you can be legendary. And so could you sort of open that up a little bit for me, Maura? Well, you, you just, you just nailed it first with something that I think especially men have to learn, which is that I've never interviewed someone successful who's been alone in their journey. And most people who are really successful are literally, like you said, supported (laughs) in ways that we don't even think about. And so that's a big piece of it is that, you know, and maybe you did grow up in a family that encouraged you to be that lone wolf, that encouraged you to never ask for help, that encouraged you that it was shameful to seek help, right? Not you, but, but is that outdated thinking that you could change? Because the key is that exact process. It's like, what can I do? What's easy for me? And that I seem to do really well that other people value. It's like a pretty easy equation. So I just recently had this aha with writing. And then then I had it with my whole fucking life. And it was like, what? So, you know, I'm a multi-time author. But as a dyslexic, I'm at a point now where I can write on my own, but it's a heavy lift. And so I've always written with partners and collaborators. And I love it. I, I, I always love being in a band versus being a solo artist, if you know what I mean. And when I sit down to write, you know, of course, right on a computer and I'll sit there and I'll be writing and I'll be in a real flow and I'll hit something and I'll go, oh yeah, let me go check. It'll fire an idea. Maybe we should have a link here, whatever. For some reason, I go to my browser. Well, then I'm gone for 20 minutes, half an hour. And I may, I may end up reading a, a, a documentary on Motorhead that has nothing to do with any, like nothing, like I'll just, I'll start on something that was connected to whatever I'm writing and I'll, who knows where I'll be. And I had this aha not long ago. That's a feature, not a bug. I thought it was a bug. I would scold myself for that shit. And I'm like, you know what? You learn by falling down 10 to 25 minute rabbit holes on the internet a lot. It's it's one of your favorite ways to learn. And so build that into your writing. It's not a break and flow. It's a feature, not a bug. Hmm. And then I started to think about a bunch of my liabilities that I had been thinking of as liabilities and went, hmm, maybe not. 
you know, if you're, if you're in a setting and you're working for other people, like a way to think about that would be, what is, what is my feature? Maybe I think it's a bug that seems to get other people excited that taps into words that this company values. That's a really great hack. If I work at a company that's like, we value innovation. Is this weird thing that I have a piece of innovation? How can I package it? Do I tend to get rewarded when I do this? And I mean, I, I learned a while back that like, I, my weird anxiety profile that makes me this really intense, worried person is incredible at drawing other people out and invoking a sense of connectedness. And, um, and that that was a gift. And there are so many things that I am terrible at. Um, but, but, but connecting with people and, and bringing them into a sense of like belonging and team is my superpower. Now, a lot of places don't value that at all. They think that's a soft skill. They don't care. They won't pay for it. So then the other challenge is like, where can I go? What can I do that actually rewards me for this? And that's just often for us, it's trial and error, right? It's, it's just a period of working through. Um, you know, and I, and, and I think it's, I think it's a gift and a blessing when you've come to a place where that's actually how you can make your living by doing what you're good at and not doing a lot of other things. It's such a gift. Yes. And it's the biggest gift we can give ourselves as somebody who lives that gift every day. Yeah. You know, the other thing that this is maybe tangential, but your voice is comforting. I hear that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, yeah. your presence is comforting. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, it, and let me maybe bounce this off you. You've done a lot of work on yourself, yes, Moral? <laughs> Several college educations worth, I'm sure. Yes. And the way I think about that kind of work is making room for yourself. Is that an analogy or a metaphor that works for you? You've made a lot of room for yourself. Well, for no, I mean, I think, I think that for me, it was more a question of survival. Hmm. Oh, I say more about that. Couldn't function in this world, you know, if I didn't have medicine, if I didn't have treatment, if I didn't have therapy, and, and I had the resources, luckily. No, I think it's much more urgent. I think it was much more urgent. And for a lot of us, it's super urgent. There are gifts that come along with it that accrue in terms of all the extra and giving myself space and all the beautiful things, but... To, to me, it's a matter of survival. So you got to a place with your anxiety where if you didn't have a psychological and medical intervention, bad things were going to happen. Many times. Many times. Yep. And I'm always scared it's going to happen again. Hmm. But it doesn't stop me. The boogeyman lives. We can't ever think that the boogeyman doesn't live. because that's part of us but we can teach ourselves to find joy you know and we can live with the horrible duality of life yes <laughs> and actually our ability to live with the horrible duality of life uh is our ability to find peace and happiness more mm -hmm. is there anything else no i think no small talk here right mm -mm. <laughs> 
not with you and me. <laughs> no. Can I uh, can I ask you a big favor? Sure. Will you come back? Uh, anytime. Anytime. Congratulations on your book. It's a Thank great you. piece of work. Thank you. And you you are going to help a lot of fucking people. Thank you. Thank you. You do too. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. That was the legendary Maura Aarons Mealy. You can find her at moraam.com. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M.com. Now we'd like to thank you. And remember, the legendary people at Doctors Without Borders, saving lives in the most challenging areas of our world. That's doctorswithoutborders.org. And we'd like to thank Clary. Learn how to stop revenue leak and drive breakthroughs in the way you govern and collaborate on revenue at clary.com. And do you want to conquer your category? Partner with Atrenet to reinvent your web presence. Atrenet has been delivering category-defining websites for B2B technology companies since 1996. Go to atre.net. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains contents known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts contain nuts, all rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bartender, bud tender, therapist, yoga instructor, and category designer before acting on any of today's information. Your spouse texted and said it's okay. You can subscribe to Category Pirates at CategoryPirates.com. David Lee Roth said, I don't feel tardy. And the Ramones remind us, there's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. And Leonard Cohen said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This episode was produced and edited by moi, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J are behind the technical execution and website. Show notes by GM Simon. Web development by RJ and EX Bobus. Cedric Beers does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the winds. We record on Squadcast.fm using the latest and greatest Dolby ADHD technology. KD Lang was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. For the love of God, get out of the passing lane. Teach kids mental health. Thanks, Candy Dandy. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest, deepest condolences go to Grant Cardone. Sorry, Grant, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.